Amen, amen. Well, again, you may be seated. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means we believe here at Mercy Fellowship that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And part of how we do that is each week getting together, gathering, opening up God's word, having it change us and shape us and help us understand about his nature and his character. And so today... Um, We're just going to continue a series we're doing this summer called uh, the Psalms uh, Soundtrack for Our Souls, where we're just selecting several different songs, kind of a summer playlist, if you will, to hit some different big ideas. And today we're going to be in Psalm 19. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. That's where we're going to be today, Psalm 19. Uh, You can pull up on your app if you're joining us online. Um, Don't shut off the live feed. Go grab a real Bible and and open it up and talk to us, and otherwise we'll have it up on the screens. And so as as we turn to Psalm 19, I want us to ask ourselves a few questions. How do we know there's a God? How do we know what that God is like? If there's a God and he's real and he's revealed himself, what's his will for us? How are we to live our lives in response to the truth that there's a God? How when we are broken, how when we are imperfect, how when we are seeking and desiring glory and transcendence, do we actually get to experience real transformation? Because I think as we look at Psalm 19 today, we're going to see two big ideas about the character and nature of God that lead to our transformation. One is his transcendence, and the other is his truth. And that those two things ultimately will lead us to transformation. And see, when we, when we started this series, we wanted to remind ourselves that while these songs are, are different and, and sometimes they're songs about God as a king or a warrior or a shepherd or, or, or a father or all these different uh, uh, ways of thinking about God, that ultimately every song sung in the Psalms is about Jesus. Jesus in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, he's talking to some of his disciples after he resurrected. He said, hey, I'm gonna walk you through all of the law and prophets, that was shorthand for the Old Testament, and show you how they all point to me. So as we think about the ideas of truth, as we think about the concept of transcendence, something that's ultimately glorious, something that's amazing and beautiful and captivating, we find both of those in Jesus. And so today, as we look at Psalm 19, we're gonna see that there is a God who's the creator of everything. He has created transcendent beauty. The same God that created everything is also the arbiter of absolute truth. That there are things that are true and there are things that are false. And God is the one that gets to decide those things, and it should produce in us humility and self-reflection and reliance on this God of truth and transcendence. So as we look at Psalm 19 and we ask ourselves, how has God chosen to disclose himself to his people? Yes, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but in Psalm 19, we're gonna see three things. God reveals himself and God redeems his people through his creation declaring his transcendence, his commands decreeing his truth, 
and is Christ delivering salvation and transcendence. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 19. We've broken up into three sections, starting in verses one through six. I'll read it, and we'll talk about it. It says, Psalm 19, to the choir master, a psalm of David, verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its raising is from the ends of the heavens, its circuit to the ends of them. There is nothing hidden from his heat. Let's stop here. So this first section, how does God reveal himself? He's, well, his creation, it says, declares who he is. And so uh, before you even get into these verses, you see this, to the choir master. That means that this is a song that like, you know, sometimes there's soloists, sometimes there's songs on the radio, right, that are sung to a boyfriend or girlfriend, right? You know, this is a song that is intended to be sung with a choir, with a multitude of people all in harmony singing one song. And, and the reason I believe that the psalmist said, let's not, let, no, we don't want this one to be a solo. We don't want this to be special music, right? Where somebody kind of gets up and maybe, maybe the music guy should listen to before they get up, right? And kind of sings a little song. It's like, no, no, if we're gonna convey the truth of God's transcendence, then we better have a, a full choir with us, a multitude of voices that are magnifying the, the glory of who God is. And he's like, we're gonna have a choir for this one. We don't have a choir, we have a piano, okay. But we're gonna have a choir for this song because it's going to mimic or shadow this choir that is all creation singing to the glory of God. That literally everything in creation, all that you see, all that you smell, all that you hear, all that you experience is one choir all singing to the glory of God. Jesus actually, um, when he's coming in the triumphant entry, comes into Jerusalem and the Pharisees, the religious people are like, hey Jesus, everyone is singing your praises. You gotta tell your people to be quiet. And what does Jesus say? He says, well, if, if they don't declare it, these very rocks will cry out. You see, even the rocks could be a choir singing to the glory of God. So this song is intended to be sung corporately, combining in this harmony of God's glory. And so this is a song, 19 here, that we see that is both theologically and poetically powerful. And so think of the imagery that we see here. It's talking about all creation, right? It says, says the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims. And so it's, while it's referring to all creation, it says, let's get really specific. Let's talk about the sky. Let's talk about the heavens. Let's talk about what is above us. And so how does God choose to reveal himself? In part, through his creation. It's not heretical to say, I can see the glory of God on the top of a mountain. Might be heretical if you say that's the only way God reveals himself. God has created all things. And the reason I think that the song focuses on the heavens and the skies, or the Hebrew word is, is the word expanse. Like everything that is above what we experience in the here and now. All of that, everything that's above us declares, it says, the glory of God. 
And so this song focuses on the heavens because what's true about God and what it's trying to convey is his transcendence, right? A sky, the sky, is transcendent, right? It, it crosses borders, it goes over the ocean, it goes over land, it, the sky is over all people, over all creation, right? There's, there's nothing that's not under the sky, just as there's nothing that is not under the glory of God. And so it crosses any man-made borders, any human boundaries, any natural borders. It covers the land and sea, as we said. And here's what's amazing. When we're talking about creation declaring, the sky is not this blank void, but in fact, every day is a canvas that God paints an amazing image of his glory, right? You look up at the sky and it produces amazing and terrifying beauty and power, right? Think of a nice sunrise. This morning I woke up and I didn't see quite the sunrise. It still gets up really early at this point, but like seeing the sun rising over the mountains has a certain beauty. There's a, there's a time on our deck at the end of the day where the sun is actually behind us and, and its light is reflecting on the mountains, making them this kind of like, this like purpley color, kind of like the stained glass over here, right? Looks really great on the mountains, maybe not so much on the stained glass. Okay, anyway, moving on. How many times have you just been out, outside, and yeah, the sky's beautiful, but then, oh wow, there's something ominous. Those gray clouds are rolling in. Power from that storm, right? All of a sudden, the heavens declare God's beauty and God's power. Amazing sunsets, ominous storm clouds. It's this canvas so grand. And what's amazing about this canvas is all you have to do is look out or look up. It's everywhere. It's God's artwork everywhere. Unless you are like in a cave or in a hole, right? All you gotta do is look up or look out and you can see God's handiwork every day simply by looking up or looking out. He says here in verse two, day to day it pours out speech. The, the, the pours out phrase is actually one that refers to like a bubbling spring. If you ever been out to Yellowstone, right? You know there's these different springs, right? And they just, they just bubble and they can't be contained. It's saying the glory of God, the beauty of God, the nature of God, the transcendent of God is not a deep well you've gotta go dig and go find, but in fact, actually, it's just gonna pour out of the earth so much so it can't be contained. And it refreshes and it renews each and every day. God's beauty, God's Power, God's transcendence is this spring that's bubbling all day long. It cannot be contained and it can't be obscured by the earth. You can't hide it. And so he says each day, day by day, if you think about the sun, the sky, it illuminates the beauty of all other aspects of creation. Right, at nighttime if it's super dark, you really can't see. But in the daylight, the beauty of a forest, the mountains, the way that water reflects perfectly uh, both above and below it to kind of make that mirror image, right? It's beautiful. Amber waves of grain, right? Last week was 4th of July, right? We maybe sung that song. I think they threw that in just so that people in the Midwest wouldn't feel bad, right? It's like, out here, if you can't, if you can't marvel at the beauty of God's creation here, good luck. Try Iowa. But this is this amazing canvas, 
And there's the reason we love the sun. There's a reason we love summer here in the Northwest because we get to see and experience the beauty of God's creation that's not evident the rest of the year, mountains, rivers, etc. And so what's amazing too is he describes day by day, night by night. And so think about this song as this grand opera, right? The choir is singing and, and one choir over here is singing about the grandeur of the day and illumination and that choir gets quieter and quieter and quieter and over here is this other choir that begins to crescendo and he says that's night to night it reveals knowledge this choir of nighttime revealing again the transcendent of God but in a different way this choir over here isn't dominated by the soloist of the sun this choir over here is all the stars in the sky brilliantly shining that during the daytime, we, th- we can kind of look around and say, all right, I see Marysville, I see the mountains, everything's around here, but what can you see at night? At night, you can see the vastness of the universe. That, that where we are right now is this one point, this one place in the entirety of the universe. If it wasn't for night, you wouldn't know that. Maybe sometimes you could see part of the moon reflection, Right, there's this part of the year, part of each month where the moon reflects, it looks like the Death Star, it's my favorite part, right, where the moon's kind of like half full. We're like, that's no moon. Okay, no Star Wars fans. Somewhere my son's happy. Okay. But if it wasn't for night, we wouldn't have this idea that, oh, there might, we have a sun here, there's, there's other suns out there. There's a vast universe out there. So as great and glorious as creation is that we walk in and wander in and spend our time in uh, here and now, At night, we're given this knowledge of God's transcendence that says, consider a universe of possibilities. Consider a universe of God's glory. You want grand, you want diverse, you want beauty, you want transcendence. There's even more to this universe than you could possibly imagine. And I think that's why the sky captivates us. The skies, I think, always captivated us in some way shape or form, right? For millennia. Look at the beginning of the Bible. You read through Genesis and there's this account of the Tower of Babel. And what were, the, what were all of the people in the world doing together? Rallying around together to build this tower. Why? So they could reach the heavens, the expanse. So they could experience the transcendence. So we could see what's above all of this. What's over all of this? Ancient Greek mythology right, trying to touch the sky, right, want to climb to the top of the mountain, right, the high places you read throughout the Old Testament were these places of worship for all the people that kind of worshiped creation. Greek mythology, Icarus, right? We know he flew too close to the sun. His wings melted. Today, astrology, sun worship, finding meaning in the power and phases of the moon, guys, that's still prevalent. That's still, oh man, my attitude's really off because this is the quaternary phase of whatever. I don't know, I don't know any of the moon stuff. But we're somehow looking to the sky, looking to even the constellations to find meaning. Oh, that one looks like a bull. That one looks like a bigger dipper and a littler dip, right? You're like, we see these things in there because they display intentionality, they display transcendence and glory. And as we dreamed of flight and in the last 115 years, right, we experienced that. I was just on a plane last month, right? We have air travel's amazing. I think it was 10, 15 years ago, right? The Hubble Space Telescope, images from far outside our solar system captivated us. This is before uh, my time, but um, 
that, that deep in our souls, right? We, we, we long for transcendence. And, and in, in 1969, right? I believe it was the summer, but uh, it, it was an amazing event, right? We landed on the moon. Unless it was a hoax. Some people think it's a hoax. Okay, I think we landed on the moon. And, and, and everybody was captivated by it. And um, one of my favorite series over the last couple of years has been The Crown. If you haven't watched The Crown, it's, it's fantastic. Um, and, and in it, one of the best episodes of the whole thing is this episode called Moon Dust. And it's about the lunar landing in, in 1969. And, and yet, it's really not about that. Because what it's about is, is Prince Philip, who uh, we're into Ecclesiastes in the fall, but kind of has everything right? Solomon in Ecclesiastes has everything, is kind of empty, and so he's kind of hitting that midlife crisis point. I was like, yeah, I identify with this character, except for the whole like being prince of a whole island kind of thing. Um, And so with this, he's been going to church with his wife for years, and he's bored. And as the, the scene uh, opens, or the episode opens, they're, they're in this, this beautiful chapel, right, on the, the grounds there, and, and this pastor's gotten up, and, and he's, he's preached this sermon, and Prince Philip simply says, that's not a sermon, it's a general anesthetic. And it, he's like, it put him to sleep. Some of you, right here, right now, going to sleep, it's hot, right? We're thinking barbecue later. But in this, this episode is this search for transcendence. This search for the idea of truth and transcendence, they must be competing to one another because if something's amazing and glorious, that's great, that's inspiring, that's, that's awe-captivating. Oh, now you're gonna tell me some truths about God? Some doctrine? Some stuff about salvation? Some commandments? No, no, I want the transcendent piece. Uh, another character later in the episode says this about the moon landing that was so captivating to everybody. He said, 500 million people getting from television what they used to get from the church. A sense of coming together, a sense of community, a sense of awe and wonder. See, I don't, I don't think that happens right now on, on television, right? There's so few things that we all watch together but I can gather that every time that we've got our heads stuck up this, it's a desire for awe. It's a desire for transcendence. It's a desire to find beauty. It's a desire to find community, to find meaning. And so, for Prince Philip, I mean, I'm not gonna spoil the whole episode for you, but he ends up uh, hanging out with some, some kind of tired pastors in the middle of their pastorate. Um, and uh, I mean, it's just one of the most amazing episodes about faith, transcendence and the search for meaning and how all of his desire for greater physical activity and achievement all these things just ends up leaving him empty but he thinks that the the pastors who are like reading the bible and holding up god's truth he's like you guys are lame you guys are sad you guys are pathetic he, he's like i think the moon guys those guys are amazing and okay i'm just pulling the whole episode for you okay so then he meets them the guys that went to the moon, and he's just wholly unimpressed because ultimately, while they experienced the transcendence of God's creation, they saw the earth as this small orb, they saw the heavens as even grander, it didn't lead to transformation. It didn't lead to any change. So you can want change, and you can want transcendence and transformation, but I hate to break it to you, I don't think anyone's looked at a mountain and been like, you know what? I need to repent of pride. 
I don't think anybody's like looked at a beautiful sunset and said, I should probably stop sleeping with my girlfriend. I don't think that we just look up at the sky and see a thundercloud roll in and say, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be so selfish. I mean, unless the lightning starts to strike close, right? And then you're like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Less about me, more about you, yeah, okay. And see, this idea that transcendence and truth uh, compete with one another is just not found in the Bible because they're actually seen in harmony together. All creation exists to reveal the power, presence, and purpose of God leading his people, leading us, if you're in Christ, to respond to his truth. This isn't an idea that I came up with. This is actually seen um, here in the New Testament in Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 25. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the church in Rome, a a, a city that, that is known for transcendence, right? Big, grand buildings. Gods named after planets in the heavens. Mars, Venus, Jupiter, right? They want transcendence, but what they need is also truth. And so he writes to this church in Rome, and in verses 18 through 25, he simply says it this way. Starts a little like, probably not seeker sensitive, but we're gonna go with it, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heavens against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world or clearly perceived from the creation in the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Foolish, sorry, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, this is the consequence for suppressing this truth, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts and to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature, meaning that which is created, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, There's this transcendent truth about God that is found in the visible creation of what he's made. And so, you might say creation, man, we we got a sun on a track here. Uh, You know, like, you know, they don't even realize that we go around the sun. Let me be clear. The Psalms, this genre of literature, is not meant to be a science textbook. It's not even actually meant to be a systematic theology. It's meant to be an anthology of poetic imagery to convey what is actually true about God. So if you're looking at this and you're dismissing it because, oh yeah, we all know the sun doesn't come out of a tent, like, yeah, it's artistic. And so here, what is visible about God in creation actually displays his invisible attributes like power and dignity. It says here in Psalm 19, back to Psalm 19, it talks about 
Um, uh, let's see, verse four, their voice, sorry, verse three, there's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And so what he's saying is, hey, the, the creation doesn't actually say audible words, but it speaks something. It speaks the truth of a God who's divine, a God who is powerful, even when an audible word is not heard. It still sings of his glory. Paul, in, in that section of Romans we just read, right, he's saying this is plain to everybody. Like, you can maybe pretend there's no God, but you can't pretend there's no creation. Or you can just postulate that something came from nothing. And that's just a logical fallacy. So he's saying, hey, what can be known about God, his power, the fact he exists, is self-evident because of creation. He says it's plain to everyone, yet we foolishly deny this truth. We ignore the creator. And, and we don't just ignore the creator, we get enamored with creation, right? Because we're people who are made to, to see glory. We're people who are made to want transcendence. And so if we're not gonna find it in God, we'll place it on something it's not meant to place. So we begin to worship that which is around us. And here, Paul doesn't even say it's the sky above. He's like, yeah, creatures. Everyone's like, yay, eagles, right? And we're like two months away from everybody dressing up like a seahawk. I don't even think it's a real bird. I mean, go hawks, that's great. Go huskies, right? I'm, I'm, I'm all on board. But at a certain point, we get so enamored with creation, we forget there's a creator, and I'll come back to this again, but I believe the creation we get enamored with most is the one we see in the mirror. That's the one we worship most. That's where we look for truth and transcendence. And he says that leads to darkened hearts, dishonoring our bodies as we begin to worship ourselves in, in, in anything that's less than fully God. And yet there's this hope here as it continues to talk about the sun, right? Verse six, rising from the ends of the heavens um, or coming out from a bridegroom, leaving its chamber. Um, there's a reason the sun is chosen in Near Eastern historical literature. So like at the time this song was written, it wasn't just like, I love the sun. Let's have a song about summer. Yay, yay, yay. No, no. The sun represented justice. And so he's saying, there's this place, it's this tent or tabernacle, this place of dwelling, this place where justice dwells. And each day, comes out of that dwelling and justice shines its light on creation revealing injustice revealing what's true and right and good the imagery is intentional he's saying that if you're looking for a source of light and life and heat, that, that that exists. That's what he's talking about with the sun, a perspective and a place where truth and justice dwell so as we said, this is, not, this is not a science textbook. It's poetic imagery. The yes, creation and nature are tangible means of provision, but, but you can't just say, I worship the sun or I worship the earth that produces you know, grain or whatever. I'm still on the grain. I'm still on bread. Okay, great. Right? You're like, you can't just worship that. Yeah, God uses creation as a source for provision for sure. But look beyond the source of provision to the source of all provision. That's God. He is the source behind the source. And so, 
It doesn't matter if you think the sun is on a track or not, right? The sun's not God, it's just the sun is made by God. Um, This English poet in 1712, Joseph Addison, said it this way. um, What though nor reveal voice nor sound amid their radiant orbs be found. So he's talking about the sun and the stars. In reason's ear they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice forever singing as they shine the hand that made us is divine. Every time you see the sun, every time you see the stars, remember there's a God who created both. As brilliant and as glorious and as light as they are, remember there's one who's more glorious, more brilliant behind there. The sun rising and setting is a testament to the metronome-like consistency of God's creation being obedient to him. Right? Every day, every day, Every day, like a metronome, the sun rises, the sun sets. Every sunrise and every sunset is a sermon singing the glory and majesty of God. And he says that under this sun, nothing is hidden, right? Nothing's hidden from his heat. I, I love this phrase here. Because while the sun has this unrelenting glory, right? It just keeps running with passion and purpose. It's like a strong man just keeps going. The sun never stops. Like, even like when it rains, even when there's a storm, you never see the sun like, "Mm, I'm just gonna not be so strong. It just keeps going. It's faithful. Like, I, I think the sun is this amazing analogy of God's faithfulness. As the sun rises, and 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 it goes over the earth, emanating heat. So does the glory of God. And so, so you might be, under creation, able to obscure light. Right? We're inside right now. The, 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 the light of the sun is less brilliant here because it's been obscured. Right? You can put sunglasses on. You can go ahead and hide in the shade. You can, you can go inside your house and close all the blinds. But I want you, for a moment, to think back just two weeks ago today. Was there anywhere you could get away from the heat. Anywhere. I mean, maybe you're one of the like one and one-tenth of a percent of people on this side of the mountains that has air conditioning, and you're like, oh yeah, we got that 110 down to 80. My family, we were at a house over in North Idaho that had like five more days of heat like that, and the house had the air conditioning break two days before we showed up. At two o'clock in the morning, it was still 88 in the house. There is nowhere to escape the heat from sun like that. In the same way, even if you try to block it out, there is nowhere in creation, nowhere in your life that you, as much as you think you've blocked out all the light, can escape the heat of God's glory because it permeates everything. It it is undeniable, it is unrelenting, right? When it was hot two weeks ago, there was no break. So you might be able to fool yourself, right? Like, hey, we jumped in the lake every now and then. It was great. You're like, oh, it's not that bad. Then we immediately got out. Didn't even need a towel. We just dried just by standing. Wherever you're at, you might have moments where you think you've suppressed the truth about God, but that heat will find a way in. It is as unrelenting as it is undeniable. There is nowhere you can go where God's glory will not shine. And that means in the height of our individual rebellion, You can close your eyes and plug your ears and God's heat 
transcends even what we can see and hear, right? Permeates into our souls, into our mind, into our very consciousness and being. So you can deny his power and presence in the world he's created, but God has revealed himself universally through his creation, right? You're like, man, I wish, I wish the, like the Christian God, I just wish he was more universal. You want universal? He says everything under the sun declares his glory. All of the universe and the expanse declares his glory. That's, that's as universal as you get because he literally created the universe. And as universal as God's revelation is, he's also loving and caring and gives us specific truth. So they're not left alone to wonder and guess. So while there's a God who's universal in his revelation, he's also specific. And that brings us to verses seven through 11. Because if we say, oh, there's a God, okay, I'm gonna need a little more clarity if I'm gonna understand how to, how to be transformed or changed. So his creation declares his commandments or his commands decree, verses seven through 11. Says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules, hold on to that one because I know you just got prickly when you heard rules, of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Creation declares God's transcendence. Science, physics, biology, medicine, geography, those are all ways of us exploring and having revealed to us the truth and beauty of God's creation. I think it's a straw man that secular uh, people use often to say Christians are anti-science. I think if you look back through history, most scientists were Christians trying to explore God's creation. Science and Christianity are not in opposition to one another. They are in harmony, revealing the glory of God's creation. Mathematics, right? Amazing. But again, I don't think anybody's ever repented in doing a math test, right? A squared plus B squared equals must repent squared. No, no. Right, these are all things that are true, but they're not transformative. And so, if if God's decrees are clear, then they can bring us transformation. One that's wholly positive, right? Creation, it says, declares the announcement that there is a God, a powerful God, a God who made you, a God who knows you. So you start with God created everything, that means there's a God, I should want to know what he says. I should want to know more about how and why he's made me the way he has. I should want to know what my purpose is, what our purpose is together. And so that transcendence of God, I think is necessary to drive us to a desire to understand the truth of God, one that's powerful. And so, see, an announcement alone can just be information, right? God announcing his glory, right? Think about like, when you've got like a distant cousin or like friend you barely know and they send you a birth announcement, you're like, cool, guess we'll send a Target gift card, right? It's not transformational. In order for information to lead to transformation, it has to be impactful and it has to be actionable. It has to be instructional. 
It has to actually change your reality. And so we need to understand the transcendence of God in creation to know he's a God worth listening to, but we need the truth of God to have great clarity to understand how are we formed and transformed to live a life that's responsive to God with both awe and worship and obedience. The great German philosopher Immanuel Kant said it this way, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and all, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. So we need this transcendence and we also need God's truth. And here in these verses, real quickly, we get kind of six phrases that encapsulate some ideas about God's truth and how it transforms us. Number one says this, the law of God, meaning God's, it's a comprehensive term, meaning everything God said, God's word, if you will, equals perfect, or some translations, blameless. The equation follows, therefore, it revives the soul. So God's law equals perfect, equals revives the soul. What that tells us, you wanna work backwards on the math equation? Okay, wait, I guess we are getting saved with math, okay. Without the law, our soul withers. Without God's word, right? Jesus said, man is not meant to live by bread alone, but by every word of the Lord. Without that good, loving, perfect father, reminding us of the truth of our identity. We will seek identity in other places that ultimately will lead us thirsty and empty. He says here that the word of God, right? Jesus summed it up, law and the prophets. He summarized all of it, said to love God and love people. That's gonna require a little more detail than looking at a sunset it's gonna figure out. How do I love my neighbor? I don't know, maybe I'll just go like walk on the ocean and maybe it'll just come to me. No, we need God's word to be reminded that we're to love God and love people. God hasn't left us alone uh, to guess on how to live. He's given us his word. He says the word quenches our soul like we've been in a dry and weary land where there is no water and it moves us, it says, from withering, from dry, from discouraged to revival, to repentance, to renewal, to restoration, to refreshment. So if we're asking ourselves about the word of God, what does it do? It revives your weary soul. That's a transformation I want. Okay, number two. His testimony, another way of saying this, God's covenant declarations, God's promises. This is more specific. His testimony equals sure, which means confirmed or verified. Therefore, it makes simple, or another way of saying that, foolish, it makes those who are foolish wise. So when we read in Romans 1 that our foolish hearts are darkened, then the transformation we should want is if apart from God, if in denying the truth of who God is, it doesn't lead to wisdom, even though we think it does, if it ultimately leads to foolishness, then the transformation we should desire is wisdom. And he says, it's God's promises that transform foolishness to wisdom. Why? Because they're sure, meaning they're confirmed or verified. Meaning when God has promised something, he has followed through with it. It means you can rely on God. That you would be foolish to not rely on God. The true wisdom comes, yes, from the fear and knowledge of the Lord, but also remembering and believing that God is true and right and that he will do what he says he will do. 
If he says, I'll meet you in the wilderness, I'll lead you through the wilderness, and I'll lead you to a promised land, he will do that. If he says that my mercies are new every morning, just like that sun rising, it means his mercies to you are new every morning. If it means that, that no matter how far away you are from God, that, that, that no matter how much you've sinned or how broken or how distant you feel God is, that he is present and with you. That in delighting in him will lead to the revival of your soul. His testimonies are sure and true. And so when we rest in God's promises, it says we move from foolishness to wisdom. Number three, it says his precepts. Another way, if you're taking notes, God's precision. It says his precepts are correct or they are right, and this leads to rejoicing. What this does for us is let us know that this creator who made everything is fully competent to be God. God isn't careless and he's not incompetent. He's a master craftsman. He's a skilled artist. He's an eloquent author and he's written a story of beautiful redemption that is without plot holes. It's a story that is without loose ends. It's a story in which all of us are in it. There's not a forgotten character, right? You ever watch a show and you're like, I wonder what happened to that person? I don't know, the writers just forgot about him. God has not forgotten about you. He has written you a story of redemption where you can have joy as opposed to sadness when you can realize God is so precise. God is so correct and right. We can trust his story will resolve well. So I don't know what chapter in your story you're in. There's a whole lot of crappy chapters. But why we can move from sadness to joy is no matter how crappy the chapter gets, if it's a bad chapter and your faith and trust is in Jesus alone, then no matter how bad that chapter is, you can have hope because you know the story's not over yet. Because the story resolves well. Because it's a story that resolves with redemption, where we're removed from great sadness, where we're impacted by the senseless pain of a broken world to joy, remembering that even our suffering is not in vain, and that our ultimate destination is a place where there's no more sin, no more suffering, and no more tears. Where there's a new heavens and new earth where God dwells with his people. And we can believe this is true because God's in charge. That brings us to number four his commandments. Another way of saying this is God's authority. God's authority, it says, is pure. Therefore, it enlightens our vision. Right? Again, back to Romans 1. Our foolish hearts are what? Darkened. We can't see. We don't have great vision. When God's people were out in the wilderness, they were wandering, right, without direction. The answer for our darkness, the answer for our directionlessness is not to try to grope around in the dark or try to find something to hold on to in creation that's gonna somehow give us stability or or help us to see. No, it's to have our eyes open spiritually by the power of the Holy Spirit and to recognize that we are not our ultimate authority. God is an authority over you. And he uses his authority to give you vision and direction towards a life that leads you from and through wilderness to flourishing and joy in life. To see what's true, to walk in new life. Right, read, read the Exodus account. God leads his people during the day by a mighty like smokestack at night by this great light. Psalm later will say that, Lord, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
You want direction. Start with realizing you need direction and you're not in charge of yourself. Respect, trust, love, God's authority, and that leads us to number five. Because if we follow God's lead, we'll be moved from ignorance to illumination. If you follow God, you'll be led from ignorance to illumination. All right, number five. It says fear. God's reverence is clean, is holy, and endures forever. Another way of saying this is that worshiping God will never go out of style. Okay? Worshiping God will never go out of style. Um, one of my uh, daughters has a pair of Doc Martens. Um, super cool in 92. Apparently also super cool uh, in, well, I don't even know what year it is, 2021 now. Right? Doc Martens never go out of style. Worshiping the Lord never goes out of style. I'm pretty sure this, this uh, outfit ain't gonna age well. Right? We look at video a couple years from now. What was he thinking? Some of you are thinking that now. Okay. It never goes out of style. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, what endures forever? The fear of the Lord, it says, is the beginning of wisdom. Rejecting the Lord of life leads to destruction. Reverence, worship, awe is a path that says to eternity. Number six. Oh, this is the one we don't like. His rules. Okay, I've got some good news for you. I don't like rules. One thing 2020 taught me, I really don't like rules. I don't like being told what to wear, when to wear it, on my face. Okay, anyway, those, those things, right? We don't like rules. Some of us love rules. Some of us love enforcing rules. Okay, great. This word rules, you probably have a note in your Bible. Also, and can better, I think, translate into his just decrees. Another way of saying that is God speaks justice. So it's not about what you can and can't do. Yes, there's God's commandments, there's prohibitions, all those different things, but it's about justice. And it says his justice is true, again, back to reliable, dependable, and because his justice is true, we can trust in his righteousness. So what that means is while we're wandering around this world and we see all sorts of injustice, and we experience injustice, sometimes we're the perpetrators of injustice that we can know that in every area of life that God speaks and is active, that his word is justice. His decrees are true and right. In all situation that God speaks into, he will bring his full justice, either in the present, and as Christians we should seek that, we should desire that, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And where we don't experience justice now, know that it will be experienced for eternity. God's justice is true. And that leads us to this reaction. And like, I, I love as we get here to, to verse um, 10 and 11. You've maybe seen this verse 10 and 11 before and like, I don't know about coffee cups, but like, hey, you should just really love the law of the Lord. You should really love God's word. Um, I don't know how you get to these verses without the ones we just went through. Because if you're just thinking law as rules or instruction, yeah, it's better than money. It's better than treasure, better than pleasure. You're like, eh. But when we think about the condition of our souls, when we think about being weary, when we crave and we're most unsatisfied, when our souls are weary, when we're walking in foolishness, when our hearts are downcast, when our vision is obscured, when our strength is fading, when we want revival and wisdom and joy and illumination and endurance, what do we do? We pursue pleasure and treasure. 
I know I can endure if I've just got a little more money in the bank. I've got some more resources. That'll make endurance better. I'm unsatisfied, pleasure. That'll make me happy. God wants me to be happy. I'll just find a way to be happy right now. And what he's saying is what you actually want is truth of God that comes from the transcendence of God. That all the pleasure and treasure in the world, like those are not bad things. God has given good gifts to his children. We are his children. But where we are to seek ultimate fulfillment is not in pleasure or treasure because we're gonna feel sadness we're grieved by injustice, but instead, he says, pursue and trust in God with the assurance of a great reward. I, I love that. He says, hey, you, this instruction leads to greater obedience and it leads to reward. And you're like, okay, great. All I need to do is meditate on the creation of God and obey the truth of God. Done. Sermon over. Notes over. You can try that. Religion will tell you to try that and it will fail. Because if all we needed was just consider the creation of God and follow the commands of God, we wouldn't need salvation. You could save yourself. You could do it. You could just obey better. It says rewards are, rewards are earned, right? Victory, flourishing, legacy, prosperity. I want all those rewards. We, we can't do it. This alone is not good news. The good news comes as we close in these last verses. That's why I love this song doesn't just end with, creation's amazing, the law's amazing, you'll get rewarded if you just you know, love the mountains and do the law. Get these last two verses, it says this. In response to God's transcendence and his truth, David writes this in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. He's like singing to God. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I'll be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We don't keep the law. We can't follow the instructions of the Lord. That doesn't mean we chuck them out. That doesn't mean we don't repent of sin. That doesn't mean we don't walk in obedience. But those things alone is not what saves us. See here, he just starts in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Like, like put it another way. You and I don't know how screwed up we are. We can't even comprehend how jacked up we are. Most of us vacillate between soul-crushing shame and blind pride. And rarely are in this place of actually discerning our need. Actually coming to places of humility. We're blind to our own sin and brokenness. And he, he hits it in two different characters. He says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. And so that doesn't mean like, okay, we all got some little sin behind the sin. And if you can just find that last little bit and you can pull it out, you're fine. No, it's not saying that the sin is insignificant because it's small. It's saying our sin is so common that it's imperceptible to us. Oh yeah, pride, selfishness, anger, lust, Oh, we all just have those things. And they're so common that they're unremarkable. 
talks about our sin nature. In addition, he says, yeah, there's that part. And then there's your, it says, presumptuous sins. Another translation is willful sins. That's when like we legit know what's right to do and we still do what's wrong. Right, children obey your Lord and the parents, or children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Fathers, do not exacerbate your children. If only it were that easy. There's times we just know. We know what we did is wrong. We know the path we're going down is wrong. And he's saying, hey, keep me and clean me and declare me innocent from the stuff that I don't even know about and keep me from walking on a path that leads to destruction. He's crying out in humility for God to do something that he's not capable of. To actually experience deliverance. He's recognizing sin is strong, our ability is weak, but he knows where to go because he knows God is stronger. He says, God on my own, I'm not even capable of understanding the depth of my sin, my errors, my faults. And so if we want transformation, if we want salvation, to not have to experience the wrath of God, but get to enjoy eternity with God and with his people, it can't come from us. It's gonna have to come from outside of us. We're gonna need more than marveling at God's creation or trying to keep God's commandments. We need to rely on his Christ for deliverance. And that's where this song gets us to Jesus. John 1 says it this way. In the beginning was the word, the commands, the law of God. He's talking about Jesus. He says Jesus is the word. He says the word was with God, the word was God. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. Verse three, all things were made through him and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life and the light of men. In Jesus Christ, we see the perfect embodiment of God's truth and the transcendence of his creation. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the word. Jesus is transcendent. Jesus is true. Jesus is the one who where the psalmist here says, God, I just hope my life is acceptable to you. Jesus is the one who's walked in perfect obedience and whose sacrifice is ultimately acceptable to God. Nothing I've done, nothing we've done is wholly acceptable to God as a sacrifice for our sins. But Christ, the Savior King of God's people, God's perfect mediator, is the perfect, and as these verses say, acceptable sacrifice to God, both to pay for our sins and lead us and transform us into new life. So we always talk about the great exchange. Jesus on the cross, we give him our sin, he gives us his life. You are a new creation if you're in Christ. You are being made new by the power of the Holy Spirit if you're in Christ. It means that the transformation you seek, that, that dissonance and disconnection you feel with yourself, even it says in Romans 1, with your own body, the answer for that is transformation that's only found in the personal work of Jesus Christ. Everything else is just superficial and will leave you just as empty. Life, light, is found in Jesus Christ. And what I love about these verses where it talks about our hidden faults and our presumptuous sins is that the cross of Christ covers more sin in our life than we're even aware exists. That's God's perfect provision for us. 
where Jesus Christ is our rock, our place of refuge. Jesus Christ is our redeemer, our champion who fights for us and brings us ultimate transformation and deliverance where we're made new, we're made clean, and we're empowered. And I'll just say empowered for greater obedience to walk away from what is false and walk towards what is true. What's one of his cries here? Um, that um, It says here in verse 13, keep me back from presumptuous sins. Don't let them have dominion over me. God, you made the sky, it's over everything, but this sin right here, that's what's in charge of me right now. God, I don't want my sin to rule over me. I want you who made the skies to rule over me. That's humility. That's recognizing our need for God. That apart from God, our sin will rule us. But later in Romans, Paul writes in verse 16, 14, sin will have no dominion over you. Sin's not in charge of you. Sin's not an authority over you. Why, he says? Since you're not under the law, but you're under grace. We get to be under, not the law, but under grace when we simply trust Jesus.